We started on Father's Day. I really would like to end with some thoughts about being the best father ever. Because if we're going to talk about having the best marriage, one thing that is the key to her heart is your attention to the family, guys. And when you're fulfilling those obligations, those responsibilities, those opportunities, then I think it's a way to her heart and to the heart of God. In the book of Matthew 25, verse 21, you remember it tells us, Well done, good and faithful servant. And then later adds, enter into the joy of your master. So if we're going to be pleasing unto God, then we have a responsibility. We want to do well. We want to hear those words, well done. And if I think about a, the best husband ever, I think about a man who must be a pretty good dad. And what is a dad but a servant? What is a husband but a servant? And so I think of those words, and I don't think it would be out of place to say, well done, good and faithful husband. Well done, good and faithful father. And when we fulfill those responsibilities, we're not only blessing our family, we're glorifying God. Now, if being a husband and being a dad is critical to our success, and if being a husband and dad is being a servant, it just seems to me that you can go over to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where there is a list of qualifications for servants. And if we look at that list, I believe it will give us some insight into what we can do to be our very best for the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 down through 13. It says deacons, and I'm thinking here not just of those who serve in that capacity as a part of the leadership team, but I'm thinking about these principles and how they apply to fathers and to husbands. Uh, to be a great servant in our family, we must, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, faithful husbands and fathers, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Goes on to talk about the wives in verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then it returns to the men. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children well and their own households well. For those who serve well, I remember well done back in Matthew 25, 21. And here it says, for those who serve well as deacons gain two things, a good standing for themselves and also 
great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You know, at the end there, it's saying that in doing well, not only do you get a good standing with people who admire your devotion to the Lord and your service to the kingdom, but in addition to that, it affects not just their impression of you, but your own assessment of yourself. And you get a good standing. Not only with the congregation, but with yourself. Good standing. Kalos bathmos. And that talks about uh, Kalos is noble or high. And bathmos talks about a grade of advancement. It just means that... Uh, you're rising in the eyes and the esteem of other people. But then you get great boldness. You get more confident, and you're more capable to serve in other ways. Well, let's take a look at some of these qualifications. I think it will bless us, as we're seeking to be our best, to look at this list and say, well, if, it, if it's going to bless a deacon in the Lord's church, I'm a servant too. I may not be a deacon in the technical sense, but, but could this also help me to serve? If it helps them, it ought to help me. It starts off with being reverent, or in the ESV it says dignified, being worthy of respect. And I think the idea is that a man has the proper uh, demeanor, that he's somebody who conducts himself in a way that is respectful and therefore people respect him. And so if I'm going to be a good dad, one way I need to be dignified or worthy of respect or reverent is in the way I treat my spouse, uh, that the children ought to see the way I treat her. I don't try to push her around, either physically or verbally. But as we said last night, with that calmness and that courtesy and consideration, uh, our relationship is more adult and more spiritual. But I need to have the same attitude towards my kids. I need to be dignified as I deal with them. Just because they're younger, I don't think gives me the right to disrespect them. So as I'm dealing with them, I don't think I need to be uh, severe and intimidating and throw my weight around in order to relate to them. But instead, there ought to be a respectful tone. And I teach them the consequences of their actions. I teach them how to think about uh, reaping what they sow, I give accountability, but you can give accountability uh, without being a bully. And a great father and a great husband is not a bully. I, I think he needs to show his children and his family how to be dignified and reverent and respectful of God and his holy word. I, I think they ought to uh, show the family the reverence that is due the elders of the Lord's church. And that 
we ought to be respectful of the unity of the church because it's so fragile. And if that's the bride of Christ, we would do nothing to harm it. So I think the place you start is with reverence. You know, with deacons, the point is, it's the first thing on the list. If a guy is not dignified, if he's not reverent, if he's smug and brash and insensitive, don't even talk about any of the others. He's just not ready for appointment. But I I guess the same thing is really true. If you're looking for a husband, if he doesn't have that dignified attitude, if you're not married, ladies, you may want to think twice. And guys, this ought to be at the top of your list. That you're going to have this becoming spirit in the manner in which you relate to others. Now after it talks about reverence, it goes on then with three qualifications using the word not. Not, not, not. I think that probably is a flag to tell us that these are three areas where Satan has really been successful in the past. And so right behind your attitude come these three warnings. And he's saying, pay attention, because Satan has been very successful. So you need to be more vigilant in these these particular ways. So if I'm going to be my very best as a dad, I don't want to be double-tongued. A deacon ought not be double-tongued. A dad ought not be double-tongued. So that when he speaks, his children know that his words mean something. The Bible warns us about our speech constantly and says if a man considers himself religious but he doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion's vain. Because really, whatever you're saying is your inside getting on the outside, isn't it? It's revealing what's really going on in your heart. So we need to be careful. Uh, We don't need lascivious talk. We don't need profanity. Uh, We don't need gossip. We don't need slander. We don't need cruel talk. We don't need careless talk. A lot of times the problem is careless talk. But you know, in Matthew 12, 36, it tells us that every careless word you speak will be brought into judgment. And sometimes we're careless as parents. I hear parents say things that maybe they think are cute, but I'm not sure they've thought it through. And they're speaking to their preschoolers or their young elementary kids, and it's just not fitting for a Christian, and it's not fitting for a father. Don't speak foolishly, carelessly, because every seed you sow is going to bear fruit. I want to be careful what I speak into the hearts of my children. Needs to be holy, needs to be gracious, needs to be encouraging. Colossians 4, 6, our speech is is to be gracious, seasoned with salt. In Ephesians 4, 29, it says, don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Instead, that which is going to edify and impart grace. That everything I say ought to fit this criteria. Does it build somebody up, not take them down? Too much sarcasm. Bad timing can deflate people's spirits. Hurt their feelings, hurt their confidence, 
hurt the relationships. I don't need to be sarcastic all the time with my wife or with my kids. I don't need to have that foolish jesting. But the thing in particular he talks about is being double-tongued. That's saying one thing, doing something else, telling one person something. If your children do not believe what you say, if I tell them something and I don't do what I say, then my verbal instructions, they're not going to pay much attention to. Because they know I don't mean it. They know it's still open to negotiation. They know that if they cry or if they throw a tantrum, then, well, the circumstances could change. Do I mean what I say? Don't say it if you don't mean it. But if you mean it, you need to follow up with it or you lose their respect and their credibility, your credibility. They say that credibility is the ratio of promises made to promises kept. So as a dad, if, if I make uh, promises of benefits for good grades or things that we hope to do, I need to understand. I need to keep my promises. I need to be forthright, need to be transparent, need to be honest, and they need to know that. So a good dad's not double-tongued. He's not given to much wine. The Bible clearly teaches that drunkenness will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. It's listed among the works of the flesh, and it'll keep you out of heaven. I think the, the social drinking lifestyle also has no place in the life of a man who wants to be his best for his family. If I want to be my best, you know, I start asking questions. Is this going to help me make decisions for my family? Is this going to make me a better husband or dad? Is this something that's going to uh, in, in, enlarge my influence and my standing, which has an impact on my family and the congregation. Is this going to be for good? You start asking questions. If you ask the right questions, you get a better, you get a better uh, result. So I want to encourage us to think about that. You know, I, I've often quoted John 10.10. 10. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundant. Let me just ask you a question. Is it okay to ask people to raise their hands? If you know anybody, whether from your family or from your circle of friends, whose life was not made more abundant but less abundant as a result of alcohol, would you raise your hand tonight? I just want to look around. If you know anybody in your circle... You know, if there wasn't a passage in the Bible about alcohol, I think spiritual people could have enough judgment to know, looking at the heartache and the hardship that it creates, that this isn't in keeping with the purpose of our life. Because we're trying to elevate our consciousness and with every drink, rather than putting on the armor of God, I think we're taking off a piece. We need to be careful. Because... Alcohol makes us less kind, less considerate of others. That's what Lemuel's mother said. Lemuel, in Proverbs 31, it's not for kings to drink. Well, why not? 
because you'll forget the law and you're going to oppress the innocent. See, what happens is you forget the law of love. You're just going to behave more selfishly, anti-socially, unsafely, under the influence than you would otherwise. Uh, I think studies have clearly shown that when a person drinks alcohol, the more they're under the influence of alcohol, the less restraint they have, the less willpower they have, the less discipline they have. And as Christians, those are characteristics we desperately want more of, not less of. If I was going to use one passage to discourage taking up this habit in my life, I think it'd be the great commandment. Not only that we love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, but love my wife, love my kids, and love my neighbor as myself. And I think more, when your heart is more centered on others, you just obsess a lot less about alcohol. It just can't take up Uh, that important place in your life. So, if I'm going to be my best, uh, I think that we need to to decide, I'll be my best if I'll leave this alone. It also says in this uh, section of three knots, not only that we should uh, not be double-tongued, not given to much wine, but it also says, not greedy for gain. And the, the real problem there is materialism. A dad, if he's going to be his best, is not going to be materialistic. Materialism is a preoccupation with material comforts and material concerns at the expense of the spiritual and the familial And so what happens? You know, the more a guy gets into his work and he gets preoccupied with that, the higher his chances of divorce, the higher his chances of his children being delinquent. Now that doesn't mean it's wrong to work hard. We need to work hard. We want to provide for our families. But the best dad realizes that life is not about the abundance of, of things that I acquire. It's not chasing money, piling up money. It's not chasing pleasure. But the reason I'm working is to care for my family and my church family. And if I think that life is about acquisition rather than contribution, I'm going to have problems. The best father won't let that mental road hog of covetousness take up the room in his heart and mind that belongs to his wife and kids. Because the more I'm thinking about those things, I'm not thinking about the needs of my children, the needs of my wife. So, uh, the next thing on the list tells us that a deacon, and in our case, we're saying the, the best possible dad, holds the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. 
The best dad is a man of the Word. He loves the Word of God. You can't give to your family what you don't have. He loves the Word of God. He's always learning it. He lives it. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience says, I'm actually doing what I'm reading. That I believe, I believe this. The Word of God is not only true, but it's best. That when I live the way the Bible describes, my life flourishes, thrives. And the same is true for those that I love. So here, I think he's telling us we want to be a man of the Word so that we can bring God's Word more to those that we love. And when we don't do this with a sincere heart and a clear conscience, what happens is we mess up that conscience. It's not just that you do wrong, you do harm. Once you, once you uh, toy with that conscience and it begins to malfunction, and it loses its sensitivity, it makes it harder not only to discern truth, but it makes it harder to find your way back to God. So, here's a man who loves the Word. It says that uh, this kind of man, when you test him, is going to be a blameless man. Now, when you talk about testing, I just want to say, dads, test yourself. How am I doing? You ought to constantly be asking, how am I doing? Where could I improve? You test yourself. But let's look at this idea of blameless. You know, when I go do a deacon seminar and I start talking about a deacon must be blameless, I think they all want to get up and run out of the room. Because it just, I, you know, I just can't do that. But it doesn't mean perfect for all time past and present and future. That's not what it's talking about. You couldn't have any church leaders. Paul certainly couldn't lead. Peter certainly couldn't lead. Others in the Bible would be disqualified. That's not what it's talking about. But what it's saying is that this man is irreproachable because he has done what God wants about his sins. To be blameless, well, first of all, you're blameless through the blood of Christ, right? So he has obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless and until you're baptized, you're not blameless, because without baptism, uh, you have no forgiveness of sin. So if, if I have been baptized and... If I have done wrong and confessed that before God, the blood of Christ can make me blameless before the Lord. But I think it's talking about being blameless in the eyes of others as well. How can I be blameless before you? If I have hurt you, I need to acknowledge it. You need to know that I know. Not only that I did wrong, but I know the pain it caused you. When I fess up, and then, as far as is capable, fix it up, then I'm on the right track. 
In other words, if a guy's going to be blameless, what it means is that no one can legitimately say he will not admit or correct his wrongs. So a good dad, the best dad, is not somebody who never makes a mistake, but when he does wrong, will admit it. He'll learn from it. And he'll correct it. And he won't just go on doing the same thing again and again and again, offering apologies that don't mean anything, but actually demonstrates that he is in pursuit of holiness. He has done what God... I think you can tell as much about a man by how he deals with his sins as almost anything. So, you know, there's some times I remember when I've had to look into my kids' eyes and tell them I was wrong. And I want you to know that I know I was wrong. And I'm sorry I've disappointed you. Our faith needs to be in Jesus because I'll let you down. But I love the Lord. I'm trying to do what's right. I want to make this right with you. And, and let's keep living for heaven. Well, here we have another qualification. If I'm going to be the best dad, I can't just try to hide my sins. I don't want to just be the sneakiest person on the block. I want to be honest. And, and I want to deal forthrightly and maturely with those problems and face up to them. You know, it, uh, it, it goes on to talk about the family relationships. A great deacon is the husband of one wife. If I'm going to be a great dad, I need to love my kid's mom. And uh, sometimes we look at this, uh, it looks like a mathematical equation. You know, if you get the right numbers and the right genders, check, okay? But maybe it means more than that. The husband of one wife means that this one woman is a woman that I am caring for. I, I am attending her needs, just like I promised. You remember? Who remembers when you proposed to your spouse? I remember when I proposed. And Do you remember the kind of promises you made about how you'll, if you'll marry me, I'll do everything I know how to do to bless you and to protect you? And then we get married and we have vows. So in sickness and in health, plenty and in want, we understand these promises. But somehow, after the honeymoon, after the first year is over, and when push comes to shove, these things that we vowed, these things that we proposed to do, can begin to rank lower on our list of priorities. When other concerns rise higher in your life than your concern for your spouse, you have what Jesus calls thorny ground. You've got a thorny marriage. When, when your attention is divided, I believe 
God's intention is frustrated. He wants you to honor Him in the greatest, next to your commitment to Christ, the greatest promise that you will ever make during your days on the earth. And this becomes absolutely the number one way for you to show your love for the Lord as well. I want to care for her needs. When I don't do that, her needs are not met. I really think oftentimes a wife's unhappiness mirrors God's displeasure with that man. And he ends up being just a shell of the person he could have become because by caring for her, he's becoming that Christian godly man that he needs to be. We need to raise this to the pinnacle of our priorities. And so I propose if you want to be the best husband ever and the best dad ever, you've got to give attention to your wife, bringing joy into her life. And you ought to want to have an incredible marriage. Is that a good goal? We set goals when it comes to our health, our calorie intake, how many reps we're going to do, how many laps we're going to run, how much money we're going to save. We set all kinds of goals, but when it gets to our marriage, no goals. Why not set a goal and say, I want to have not an average marriage, I don't want mediocrity. That's not what I signed up for when I got married. I want an incredible marriage. Now, you have to be careful because the word incredible, actually the primary meaning is preposterous or absurd. So that's not what we're talking about, okay? Uh, some men really believe, I think they believe in their heart of hearts, that this marriage thing is just a hoax, a happy marriage is a mirage. Uh, they just don't believe it's possible. We get tricked into this marriage thing. Uh, well, maybe it's possible for a few people, the ones who won the marriage lottery, but not for us ordinary mortals. Now, you see, if you think like that, what happens is, if you don't believe it's possible, you're not going to put much into the marriage. You're not going to invest yourself. You're not going to try hard. So what I want you to do is put that out of your mind. When we talk about incredible, we're talking about fantastic, spectacular. Now, if you're going to have this kind of wonderful marriage and be a, a one-woman man, husband of one wife, with her being at the pinnacle of your priorities, right next to your devotion to God, I think there's a few things that you might want to do. One we've already talked about. We spent a whole night talking about it. If you're going to be the husband of one wife as God intended, you're going to pray for her. Pray for her. Pray with her. And that's going to be an everyday experience in your life. When you're doing that, what's it doing? It's bringing your priorities back to your mind. And it's bringing God's aid to strengthen you to resist selfishness. And you're going to be more on track for a happy marriage. When I, when I see husband of one wife, 
I think it assumes that you're scripturally married, but also suggests that you should be happily married. And that doesn't mean you don't have problems. But again, how do we deal with those problems, those unresolved conflicts? So, I think you ought to pray for it. I like to post things. You know, if you, if you look at my phone, you're going to see a picture of my sweetheart, Lisa. And that's just a little reminder of what's most important in my life. If you look at my computer, you're going to see on several screen tops, well, you'll see some grandkids and you're going to see Lisa. I like to post things. Maybe some of you have asked for me in my house, we'll serve the Lord. Maybe you have some Bible verse. I have a wall hanging. Every morning we get up, I see it. It says this. I can't promise you that I will be here the rest of your life. But I do promise you I will love you the rest of mine. So I'm not sure who's going first, but as long as there's breath in my body, I will be there for you. I think there's a lot of artifacts that would show that truly this is the most important relationship in your life. Little mementos, notes, and other things. I, I think you plan to spend time together. You don't expect that just to happen. One of the best things that ever happened to me was when I learned that my forgetter is better than my rememberer so that I could plan things and be more intentional. And so we would plan dates, uh, going to concerts in Chastain Park and get some season tickets and you can pick so many of those and you already have the dates on your calendar. They're already there. Because if I have to think about it, well, I might forget, might remember, but... I don't trust myself. So I think you have to plan to spend time together. It could be a walk in your neighborhood in the early morning. Lisa and I like to walk, get up and walk in the mornings. It could be going to Jackson, having a cup of coffee about 9 o'clock. It, it could be a picnic in the park or a candlelit dinner. It could be going to the movie or going to the theater. It could be planning a vacation. And, and maybe it's one that you have to save two or three or four years for. Maybe it's a cruise. And, and so you have pictures that you put up and you think about going and you, you collect that money in a jar or in an account. And you have fun talking about it and thinking about just basking in each other's undivided attention and how much fun it's going to be. I mean, you get the pleasure of the trip for months and even years in advance of going. But it has to be a priority. So yeah, you can, you can pray and you can post things and you can plan together times. Probably the most important thing you can do if she's going to be at the pinnacle of your priorities, if you're going to actually uh, focus focus your efforts towards her would be just to give her your presence. That means I listen raptly. 
I, I listen not just for the words, but for your feelings. I don't interrupt you. I want to make sure you finish your sentences or your thoughts. And so I don't speak too quickly so that I can be sure that I've absorbed everything that you're trying to say to me. I ask questions so that I can invite you to say more. And that's an opportunity for me to learn about your heart. And every once in a while, I may restate what I heard, not only for clarification, but just to be sure you know, I really am here. So attention expresses affection. I love you. And pauses, rather than talking over her, reveals your priorities. You and what you think are important to me. And questions promote closeness. They give you permission to continue. Not just permission, but encourage you to say more. Tell me more. Let me know more about you. And then, finally, those paraphrases show presence. I'm really, really here. There just aren't many things you can do. Listening is loving. Do you believe that? Listening is loving. Focused attention is loving. Now, I want to concentrate upon this relationship. I don't want a thorny marriage where the mundane things, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life, pleasures of other things, gets in the way. She knows where she is in my priorities. But another thing that we have to do is be flexible and willing to change. You know, if I listen to my spouse, she, how does she know that I really hurt her when I change? I need to be a different person as a result of that conversation. And one of the best questions you can ask your spouse, guys, if you want to be the best husband ever, here's a good question to ask. What am I missing? I teach preachers. This is what preachers ought to ask. There, What am I missing? Deacons ought to ask. What am I missing? Because I'm not even smart enough to know what question to ask. But here, God has blessed you with somebody who can bring information into your life. When I think about Eve being Adam's helpmeet, I don't think that meant just that she tidied up around the garden. I think there's more to it than that. And some of the best help that we give each other in marriage is perspective. And you know, you, you can go to a counselor or a coach or a consultant and try to get information to help you. That's a good thing. I, I hire coaches uh, for my development. But here, I'm not going to say for free, but for no extra cost, you have a person who probably knows you better than you know yourself. And you need to quit punishing her for telling you what you really need to hear. You know, we have those uh, mirrors on our trucks, guys. Those, those big mirrors. What are they for? To help us with our blind spot. You think we have 
blind spots, relationally speaking, or when it comes to our uh, performance or our demeanor, uh, we don't always see ourselves. And so here's somebody who could help us and bless us if we're not hard ground, if we won't punish them for speaking up. They can help us avoid unnecessary scrapes along the road of life. Your wife can do more than tell you you missed a belt loop or a collar button. She can tell you things that will help you to become a holier man or a more effective professional man. So we need to listen. Uh, There's all kinds of things that we could ask. I think you need to ask her What could I stop doing? You're going to be the best husband ever. I bet there's something you do that annoys your spouse. Now, most of us do. And if there is something, if you could increase her moments of joy by removing that irritation, would you do it? Would you? I hope that you would. Instead of saying... My house, I'll do what I please. I think we need to be more sensitive and remember what we promised to do. I had a guy show up at a deacon seminar one time. He had a a list. He didn't know that I was going to talk about this subject, but he says, Aubrey, I've got a list here of things that I do for my spouse. This is going to sound kind of weird, but it's kind of neat too. While she's showering. I do it anonymously just for the sheer joy of loving her. She doesn't know what I'm doing, but I'm looking for different things I can do around the house. There's a lot of things you can do in the time she takes a shower. Now, he's trying to get this list. He had, I don't remember how many he had on there, 20 or 30. He was going to 100 The point is this, what happens to a man who gets up in the morning and that's what he's thinking? Not just to remove annoyances, but what what little thing could I do to bring more joy to my wife? What do you think happens over 50 years when a man is making daily choices, getting up thinking, about what he could do less of to annoy her and what he could do more of to please her. What, there is no limit to how joyous that marriage can be. So I think not only do we need to focus on her, concentrate on this relationship, but we need to be flexible. I think we have to will, be willing to become, if we're going to be the best husband ever, willing to become the man that she needs and that she deserves. Uh, I may have already shared this with you. I I don't remember if I have or not. I asked Lisa, my wife, a question every morning. I told you about her diagnosis. I took her this week, by the way. She asked me would I go with her, and I enthusiastically agreed to her one-year survivorship luncheon that they had at the hospital for patients. I didn't know she was going to speak. And she got up and spoke. 
But here's the one question I ask Lisa all the time. What could I do to make you ecstatically, blissfully happy today? That's what I want to know. Uh, except, I usually say it this way. Tell me one thing I can do to make you ecstatically, blissfully happy today. And more times than not, she'll say something like this. Would you smile for me today? Because sometimes I forget to smile. Or it may be I'm in a hurry. Could you pick up the laundry? And guess what? I was going to pick up the laundry anyway, right? Because she was going to tell me to go do it. But now, now I get the benefit of having asked. And I think that's important. In one of our deacon seminars, a man was in the back. He started texting his wife. That sounds kind of cool, okay? What can I do to make you ecstatically, blissfully happy? So he sent off that text during the seminar to his wife. And about 30 seconds later, he gets this message back. And it said, honest, I'm not mad. You know, in other words, if this comes out of the blue, if it's not something you do very frequently, it looks like an apology or it looks like a, a repair attempt, or she's wondering, what are you up to, okay? But when we do it consistently, I think it, it, it can feel a little different. So there's ways that we do that. Another guy, we were talking about uh, sending these little notes. Have you ever heard 143, what that means, a numeric text? See, here's a, here's a brilliant woman. She must have got some of these 143 texts. Uh, those are the number of letters in I love you, one, four, and three, for those three words. How many letters in each of those words? So we were talking about that, and the fella texted his wife, and a few seconds later she responds, who stole your phone? So he hadn't done it since college. Do you think that's too long? What can we do to change? And sometimes the change is to go back to what we were doing when we were head over heels in love. And we'll feel the same way we did then if we do that today. I think another thing you have to do is that you have to be committed to protect her. You said we're going to put her at the pinnacle of our priorities. You're going to say, I treasure you. And we're going to make sure that we're flexible, we're changing, we're really listening and doing something about it. So I'm going to treasure you. I am going to hear you. I'm going to protect you. You think that's important? Who's the person who can hurt your wife the most? Well, we all... I've got an alarm system in my house. It was installed before I got there, but I've got it. But who's the person who can really hurt her most often and deepest? It's me. And so I think we have to be careful. When we uh, are selfish, we bring pain into our spouse's life. When we lack discipline, it can take the form of affairs or it can take the form of abuse. You know, when it comes to affairs, what's the key? 
I have to make up my mind. I'm not going to tease. I'm not going to jest. This isn't funny. I'm not going to put myself in a compromising position. I'm not going to give her the pain of wondering what I'm up to because I'm somewhere that I really shouldn't be. Proverbs says if a man takes fire into his bosom, he's going to get burned. If you play with fire, good things are not going to happen. This is a sin that David, a man after the heart of God, fell to. So who do you think you are? You know, there is no honorable ending to playing this game. So we make up our minds. I I am going to protect my honor, and I'm going to protect her well-being. This just is not going to happen. Not going to start down. There's just going to be an alarm system go off. If anything... Uh, compromising begins. But the other thing is, sometimes it's, it's not just the physical unfaithfulness. It's the emotional harm that we can create. And so with our tone and our looks and our sarcasm, we can hurt her and hurt her deeply. So I want to protect her from me. Love does no harm to another, according to Romans 13.10. I don't want to bring any pain into her life. Now, there's one last thing that I want to mention here. Not only am I going to focus on this relationship above all others and be flexible in change, I will change to become the man she needs and deserves. And I am going to fight for her well-being, for her trust, for her respect, I'm also, I'm also going to be her best friend. You know, Jesus called himself our friend. And I think we ought to strive to be best friends with our spouse. You know, some people judge their marriage by what they don't do. I don't beat her. You know, I, I don't run around. Um, what does she want? I mean... Well, she wants more. You can't define your marriage just by what you don't do. That's important, but she wants more than security. She wants intimacy. So the question is, and she gets to answer this. You can think about it. You can ponder it. Does she feel more like a soulmate or a cellmate? How do you know if you're best friends? You know her dreams. I, I think there is a, there's a kind of respect between best friends. There's an openness and an honesty and a sharing. You talk about your feelings and your future. There's no place on earth you'd, you'd rather be. For those of you who can, you can let down your hair around them. It's just a lot of different things. Just this, this timeless relaxed presence. And that's something that we ought to be shooting for. Well, going on in these qualifications, it says, lastly, it's not just being the husband of one wife, but it's also a man who rules his children and his household well. There's that word well, well done, good and faithful servant. 
A deacon who has done well has a good standing and great boldness. And so he who rules over his children or manages his children and his household well. If I'm going to be the best husband ever, I need to take care of domestic responsibilities. I want to pay my bills on time. I want to manage my property. I need to cut, if I live in a neighborhood, now if you live out on a farm, I think it's your business. But if you live in a, a subdivision, you ought to cut your grass before your neighbors go berserk. And if you are functioning in this way, it, it allows the home to operate in a much better way. If you're not respected in the community, I don't know how she respects you. So, I don't want my house to be a place that's just squalor and squabbles. You know, there needs to be some domestic tranquility. And you don't have to be rich, but there ought to be some financial stability. And that these are indications of spiritual things. Not being wealthy, that's not what we're talking about. But that whatever the conditions are that we're handling them, when you manage your household well, it says that you're using the higher and the spiritual functions to live a more caring and responsible life, that you're using interpersonal skills well, because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is, and conflict resolution skills well. Uh, read about Paul's instructions to Euodia and Syntyche. I mean, that you're doing this well. But it mentions children in particular. If you're going to be the best husband ever, give your attention to your children. If you're going to rule them well, when I hear the word well, I think about the state that they're in. If you want to know how a leader's doing, how's his followers doing? That's a pretty good indication, isn't it? And so if, if there are real problems, sometimes it may not be the child as much as the influence on the child. It may be a lack of instruction. It may be a lack of encouragement. It may be a lack of accountability, like Eli. It could be the lack of a good example. But there's a lot of possibilities there. But I want to, to make sure that I'm using my influence to provide supportive accountability for my kids. I want to hold them accountable. I want them to be responsible. But I don't think that comes just from being a disciplinarian. If we pride ourselves more on being a disciplinarian and having our kid under our thumb than building their self-esteem and developing their potential, I think we've probably made a mistake. Because if your kids fear you, you might keep them out of the principal's office. But when they're grown, you may keep them out of the church. You may keep them out of jail, but in the end, you may keep them out of heaven. I know they're individuals and they make their own choices, but I want to use my influence to, to be a positive force. And that means, you know, there's got to be a little kindness and a little patience, not just intimidation and severity. I'm not going to just lecture. 
That's what I'm saying. I'm also going to listen. I'm not just going to criticize. But I'll build them up. I'm not just going to berate them for what they lack. I'm going to supply what they need. And so we need to be caring for our kids. Well, I hope this has made a little sense to you. We've had a great week. We talked about taking the best family pledge. I'm going to be the best. Not okay, not better. Best. That's what I'm shooting for. To do that, we said the model is Jesus Christ. We want to follow in his holy footsteps. And that includes being willing to suffer if need be in order to care for my family. It may take some sacrifice on my part, some patience. We talked about the challenge, that if we're really going to keep this best husband, best wife, best family, best marriage pledge, then it's going to take a permanent change of mind, a 7-12 mindset, a golden rule mindset. And we added to that the next night that when we're thinking about our family and what they need, we don't give sparingly. We don't give forgiveness sparingly. We don't give love sparingly. Because as we give, so will it be given to us, into our lap. And if we want God's best, he says you give your best, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, the measure matters. We've talked about the importance of prayer to collect and direct our thoughts to keeping this pledge, to following Jesus' example, living by that 712 rule, remembering the importance of being all in and sowing bountifully into the life of our, our family. And we talked about the purpose of marriage. Why are we doing any of that? Why do I want to take this best husband, best wife pledge? Because I want to glorify God. And we're going to do it together. We're going to let our light shine together by the way that we thoughtfully, respectfully, and responsibly take care of life's issues. When we do that, I will be giving to my spouse and I'll be growing. It's better to give than to receive. I'm going to give and I'm going to grow and I'm going to have this calm, courteous, considerate, and even creative way of looking out for her interests and she's looking out for mine and we're taking our relationship to this level where every time a problem comes because we're looking out for each other, it automatically makes us come closer because we're thinking not just about what we want, but we're thinking about each other. And we're not going to settle for one-sided solutions. And now we see some character traits, some attributes that we need that can help us, especially as men. Ladies, I, I hope that you notice that these are attributes that will help you at the very same time, but that we can use to be our best an attitude of reverence and respect instead of being out of control and disrespectful. That we're going to be disciplined in our speech, in our habits, our moral habits. It's going to be our mouth, our morals, and our money. Our words and wine and wealth. We're under 
control under the control of the Spirit, not intoxicating spirits. We're people of the Word, letting it dwell in us richly, believing it's not only true, but it's best and blameless because even though we're going to mess up, we handle it Christianly and responsibly. Then finally, our devotion to raise that marriage, my concern for my spouse and my kids to the very top of my priorities. Nothing comes before them except my Lord. And when I care for them, He's delighted and He's glorified. So, I hope that somewhere this week, you found something you can take with you that will help you and bless you. Catherine Aird said that if you can't be a good example, you'll just have to be a horrible warning. Well, I hope that you're not going to settle in your life for just being a horrible warning. We want to be bringing glory to God through our families. And it all begins when you get in the waters of baptism because you die to yourself. That's where every good thing comes from. Every good thing. So if you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, do it tonight. If you need prayer, do it tonight. Don't you leave here without knowing you're right with God. And remember, you can't be your best without being her best, guys. So if you need to come, do it now as we stand and sing.